Let's continue to worship with a reading from Psalm 63, verses 1 through 7. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And so I have looked to you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. And because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with rich and fat food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed. And I meditate, you, meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, what's up? How's everyone doing? Awesome. Uh, my name's Chris. If I don't know you, I'm the lead teaching pastor here at Riverstone. I'm glad you're with us. Welcome. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Psalm 63, and you can hold that place. We're going to come back to it. Uh, I want to talk to you today about the uh, greatest enemy uh, to your relationship with God. Greatest enemy to your relationship with God. What do you think it is? What do you think it is? Instagram? Um, Netflix? The mall? Alcohol? Por Pornhub? Zillow? Yeah? Uh, maybe it's not a thing or a website. Maybe it's a mindset. Maybe it's a world. Maybe that's the, maybe a worldview is your greatest enemy. Maybe, if it, maybe it's our post-enlightenment materialistic worldview in which we dismiss any spiritual reality. Maybe that's the greatest barrier you have to walking, and knowing, walking with God and knowing God. Um, maybe, maybe you just struggle to believe he's there because nothing's there that's not scientifically provable. You know, that, that's a formidable challenge. Uh, maybe actually on the flip side of that, maybe you have no problem believing in spiritual realities and you know the devil is your greatest enemy, pitchfork and all. After all, he's called the accuser, the adversary, right? Is it... Is the greatest enemy of your relationship with Jesus unseen spiritual powers? Is that what it is? What's the most substantial destroyer of your walk with God? What erodes it most? What makes it not possible? All those things, y'all, all those things are totally probably the deal for different people at different times. The Bible in some way deals with all those things in one way or another. And, and really, you could in the most general, simple way, we might could say that the number one thing that's your enemy with God is simply your priorities. You just have different priorities, right? You have different values. You don't value walking with God. It could be that. Maybe, the, maybe you prioritize sexual pleasure more. Or maybe that's the thing. Maybe you prioritize uh, the kind of house you want or fitting in, right? Sometimes plain and simple is just priorities. But what's the deadliest priority that destroys your relationship with God most effectively? Like what's the nail in the coffin? to you being able to know God, love God, walk with God, listen to God, do what he wants, follow him with all your heart and soul. This particular thing that we're going to talk about today is actually the greatest enemy of any relationship, not just your relationship with God. It's actually the universal destroyer of all relationships. What do you think that is? What we're going to talk about today is the reason that your marriage is difficult. 
It is the reason raising kids is exhausting. It's the reason people cheat in business. It's the reason they cut you off in traffic. It's the reason many people post things on social media. Your greatest enemy to your walk with God, it's, it's the motivation behind the phrase, always look out for number one. It's the motivation behind the phrase, live your truth. It is, what is it? It's insidious. It is the death of community. It is the death of friendship. It is the death of accountability. It's the death of commitment. It is the death of loyalty. And it is something that you will have to fight against for your entire life until the day you die or it will eat you alive. And the thing I'm talking about is self-centeredness. Your greatest enemy to God, of your relationship with God, is not some external force it is not wars, it is not famine, it's not cancer, it is not outside yourself at all. The greatest enemy of your relationship with God, especially in our day, is self-centeredness. It is the worship and exaltation and enthronement of self. It is to live a life that centers exclusively around you and you alone. Simply put, unchecked Selfishness is the greatest enemy to every relationship, whether it be with God, whether it be with others. And you're exaggerating. You build that up a lot. God, come on, right? Okay, let's go. Oxford defines self-centered as being to be preoccupied with one's self and one's affair. Merriam-Webster says self-centered is being concerned solely with one's own desires, needs, or interests. So just from that definition alone, you can see how it kills every relationship, not just your relationship with God. The person, this person, is only concerned with what they want, need, and what interests them. Therefore, self-centered people really, really, really struggle to give time or attention or much less effort to anyone else's wants, needs, or interests. Self-centered people can't rejoice in other people's victories. They cannot delight in others' interests. Why? Well, sometimes it's out of an impulse to protect their own interests, and so they distance themselves from other people's pains and sorrows, not knowing that when they distance themselves from other people's pains and sorrows, they also distance themselves from other people's joys and victories. It is to be concerned about anything other than yourself. That's the opposite. The so self-centered people are confined to the isolated house of their own emotions. They are self-imprisoned. They are cut off from others. To be self-centered is to live as if you are the center of the universe and everything and everyone revolves around you. You look so happy there, floating back and forth, don't you? With the world revolving around your every whim and interest. To live self-centered is to live a life in which everything revolves around you and your feelings and therefore is captive to your neurosis, to your anxieties, and to the preferences of your inner person. I just described to you the culture of our day, the society in which we live, the air of which we breathe. Self-centeredness colors 
how we see the world. To live a life that is self-centered, on, it is centered on yourself, is to interpret everything, all of life, through how it relates to you and you alone. Did a car just rev his engine? How dare he challenge me to a race? Did someone post something on social media? How dare she snub that in my face? It's about me. Did someone just slam a door? They hate me, right? Every time a door slams, someone does not hate you. This is what being self-centered does to you because everything in all of life is all about you. Did it rain on your birthday? God hates me. (laughs) Everything is a reflection of you to the self-centered person. Self-centered people live with a crazy amount of bitterness and frustration because everything in life is clearly an intentional snub against them. Right? Likewise, all joy, all suffering, all events only matter to the degree of which it impacts them. The person who is self-centered um, believes the only opinion that matters is their own. They are the smartest person in the room. Therefore, should be making more money than everyone else in the room. Therefore, they tend to be angry people because they're never getting what they think they deserve. The self-centered person is self-seeking, self-absorbed, self-preoccupied, self-serving. Popular word today in our culture is narcissist. Narcissist is defined as an excessive interest or admiration of self. What do I think? What do I want? What do I feel? is always the most important question. Therefore, the self-centered person has no objectivity in life. No objectivity. They can only define things subjectively. The question of the self-centered person is never what is right, fair, or just for anyone else. It's only what is right, fair, or just for me. They have no objectivity. They, the self-centered person exhausts themselves continually consulting their emotions. As one author put it in a book that I can't remember, in a character's name whom I can't remember, who keeps continually patting his shirt and fixing his tie and slicking back his hair so continually, so impulsively, as if he's anxious to be sure he still exists. Sometimes anxiety can cause an obsession with self. Sometimes obsession with self comes out as vanity in which we want to conscript others into the praise of that which we think is most valuable in the universe, me. (laughs) Sometimes obsession with self comes out as isolation, meanness, cruelty, because they care only for their desires. And the problem is other people get in the way of things you want sometimes. And so many times the self-centered person becomes relational hermits. They become disconnected. They become an island. Self-centeredness and religion have an interesting relationship. There are plenty of religious people who are highly self-centered. Religion and Christianity uh, can be twisted into simply a tool of selfishness. Um, Self-centered people use religion to make themselves superior than others. Self-centered people use religion to dismiss certain people. Uh, uh, let me give you an example. Uh, Christians do this with other Christians for the most part. They, they learn who to dismiss by their theology. 
They learn who to not take who seriously. Oh, they don't believe the right things. You don't have, don't, they're, they don't need to be loved. or be, you don't, They don't need hospitality or mercy or love or the grace of God because they don't think rightly about God. As if you think rightly about God perfectly, you see. That's Christianity twisted to be centered around you. Your theology, what you think. The question of the self-centered person, the self-centered religious person, is always this. This is great. You're going to love this. Some people are probably going to walk out and leave. Um, is this. What did I get out of it? This is the filter by which they weigh church. It's by which they weigh so community, by which they weigh sermons, by which they weigh worship sets, by which they weigh books. What did I get out of it? If that is your question when you go to church, you may in fact be a self-centered person. And I can see that as sounding being confusing because like what other question do we ask, Chris, right? Um, what else is there? I mean, isn't the church supposed to serve me? Dude, yes. Oh my gosh, yes. Dude, the church is supposed to wash the feet of the lowly. The church is supposed to build up everyone. The New Testament says, let everything you do and everything you say, everything the church does, everything the church does, let it be for the building up of others. Man, yes, the church is supposed to serve. Yes. But if you call yourself a Christian, you are the church, friend. Amen. This building is not a church. Never, never, never in the New Testament does the word church refer to a building. Never, not once. Every time in the New Testament it says church, it's talking about people who call themselves Christians. You are the church, friends. So yes, there are other questions like, who did I serve? For whom did I express the love of God? Whose meats did I need today? There are all sorts of other life-giving, abundant questions you can ask. And we could go on endlessly with this about how consumerism has impacted our idea of God. And we haven't even talked about social media. Don't even get me started. How social media has made us narcissists and self-centered. How every social media algorithm is made to revolve around you, monitoring the slightest hesitation every time so they can serve exactly the kind of videos that you want, your preferences, dude, or how so how social media was supposed to connect us and has made us strangers in our own house. <laughs> made us ferociously self-centered people, right? So, but we're not going to talk about that. Let's move on. <laughs> the Bible talks about self. The Bible talks about self. Uh, many people think the Bible thinks the self, the, the human, the, the, this is dirty and gross, right? The self's bad, always bad. That's not true. Uh, at creation, God calls man what? Not good, very good. You and me, he calls us very good. And here's the thing, though. The part of that goodness of mankind is our ability to choose. That's part of the goodness. And the story of the Bible is that we have taken that goodness of choice and chosen self over God. We've chosen to enthrone self, to worship, to bow down before our appetites and wants, the worship and ex exaltation of self over the worship of, and exaltation of God. Therefore, in the New Testament, we have all sorts of verses like this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be slaves of sin. What's, what self is he talking? What does he mean? He's talking about selfishness. He's talking about self-absorption. He's saying the sinful self, the part of us that we all hate about ourselves, the selfish part, the self-seeking part, the part of us that when it rears its ugly head, we're ashamed of ourselves. He says, that part of you, 
Dude, you can be free of that thing totally. Uh, but it's going to feel like death. And so he uses words like crucify it with Christ. And in fact, part of the invitation of the cross is to put that part of us, that part, that self, that selfish part to death that we could be free. Like it says, he goes on, and this is something we read a, a bit ago. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is Hostile to God. We read some of this the other week, a couple weeks ago. This is getting at why self-centeredness is the greatest enemy of your relationship with God. It means that your mind is set, fixed, locked only on you, yourself, your desires, your wants, your needs, of which Paul says is death. <laughs> self-centeredness is the greatest enemy to your relationship with God, um, just like it's the greatest enemy to any relationship because the self-centered person has fixed their eyes on themselves. Therefore, uh, they cannot see others. They are blind to others. It might not be that they don't want to know others. They might want to know others. They might want to be in a relationship, but they're blind to them. And it's a willful blindness. It's, it's blindness to others' joys and sorrows. It's blindness to their emotional state. And therefore, when the New Testament says things like, mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice, we say there's nothing to do because we can't see. We're not tuned in to those around us to understand when they're mourning or when they're rejoicing. We are too self-centered. So we miss opportunity after opportunity of being the church to each other because we are too busy to notice when others are suffering around us. We're preoccupied, you see, with self. And so now if that's true relationally, uh, this way, how much more true is it between you and God? Uh, I want to say a sentence to you that maybe you're going to disagree with. Self-centered people cannot know God. You know why? Because they cannot see what makes him happy or what grieves him. It's compounded with knowing God. Because also, in God, they are confronted with the true focal point of the universe. In God, the self-centered person is confronted with the true center of reality. Because if I know anything about geometry, which I know nothing, uh, there can be only one center, I think, of anything. <laughs> Sounds mathematically true. Some of you will correct me later. And if there can be only one center... The self-centered person, the person who is centered on self, when they come in contact with the being who claims to be the center of the universe, they're forced to do one thing, destroy him. To maintain centrality of self. And this is what, uh, actually, religious people did to Jesus. Not the world. Not, not those secular riffraff that don't know God. It was the religious people that destroyed God when he came to them. It was people who thought they knew God. When God presented himself to them, they said, that man has to die. Fascinating book, the Bible. Have you ever thought that all the materialistic worldview 
And all the modern impulse to remove God from society that we are uh, in the wake of for the past hundred, couple hundred years, um, is it possible that all of that scientific kind of juxta- positioning of science against faith, you know that one? Like you can either be a scientist or you can be a Christian. You know that all that whole battle, that whole like false dichotomy in my What if that whole thing might not be for the love of the truth, but rather for the love of being the center? I wonder if that's all just simply efforts to maintain centrality of self when we are confronted with a being who claims to be the center of the universe. Because the claim of the Bible is that the triune God, the Son of God, Jesus, God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son, is the center of all reality and the one before whom we must all give account, not us, not me, not you. So modern people, so much more than ancient people, immediately begin to deconstruct God simply to defend their own worldview that they are the center. We deconstruct God oftentimes to maintain and protect our centrality in the universe, the centrality of self over and above the centrality of God. Now, quick aside here, what's crazy about the Bible is it does elevate man to an incredibly almost uncomfortable place in the cosmos. The Bible elevates man to rule and reign the earth for God, to be his royal ambassadors. God calls man the apple of his eye. And I say man, I mean man and woman, okay? God's loyalty to mankind, right? God's loyalty, confounding to me. Like, I don't get it. Right? And so it's easy to come to Scripture and think, well, obviously, all of this is about me. I must be the center of all this. But that's not at all what Scripture says. Man is not the center. It is not man's man, nor his joy or his love or his forgiveness that gives meaning to the universe, that makes life worth living. It's not your love that makes life worth living, friend. It's not your joy or your forgiveness that makes life. According to the Bible, it is the love of God the joy of God, the forgiveness of God that gives meaning to the universe. It's the love, the centrality of the affections of God over your life that makes life worth living. So, the answer that resolves all of our angst and insecurities in life, the answer to our loneliness, the answer to our rage and our neurosis and our fears, the answer that heals us and restores us and rebuilds us is not the answer to the question, who am I? That's the answer that every novelist wants to answer. Every character story wants to answer this question, who am I, right? Who am I? Who is the main character? What, who are they? Are they good? Are they bad? So we then think this must be the most important question in the cosmos. Who am I? That is not the most important question in the cosmos. That will not heal you. It will not forgive you. The answer to that question cannot redeem you. The answer to that question cannot empower you and give you strength and give you mercy of your life. The answer to the question we have to wonder is who is God? Not who am I? When all we care about is who am I, it becomes an endless obsession with self, right? And it stuffs you further into the confusing labyrinth of your own emotions and sin and anxiety, right? No, thank you. The cure for self-centeredness, y'all, is centering your life on something greater, something more lasting than, your, than yourself. You can't, have a, you can't not have a center. That center? You can't not, negative. You can't not have, you have to have a center, positive. You have to have a center. There has to be a center to your life. 
Now, secular studies will show, dude, many people know this. There's got to be a sinner. I don't want it to be me. I'm not a narcissist, right? And so we, we get other centers like ending world hunger. What a beautiful center, right? Uh, fighting against sickness, becoming a doctor, volunteering at a soup kitchen, right? Or giving yourself to your family. That's my center. And y'all, if, if anything else is center over you, it typically enhances the, your joy. It's just we know that. Why? Because it helps you dislodge yourself from your own self-centeredness. It doesn't have to be. But the Bible is going to say there is one ultimate cure for your selfishness, for your self-centeredness, one delight, one obsession, one center that transforms eternally. And it's not the end to the question, who are you? It's the answer to the question, who is God? And that, the Bible would go on to say that his personality, God himself, is so robustly good and enthralling that his personality is so full of surprising delight and love that you could spend not just this life, but all of eternity and never unravel the depths of his goodness. Thank you. Thank you. God, I was like, come on, right? Y'all, the story of the Bible ends with the saved spending the rest of eternity being enthralled with the creator of the universe. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And the 24 elders throw their crowns before the lamb who was slain. The rest of eternity is spent unraveling the depths and the love and the goodness of who God is. That's called worship. And self-centered people can't do it. They can't. Because they're blind to anything of more value than their own wants and desires. Y'all, self-centeredness is the greatest enemy of your walk with God. Worship, on the other hand, is the preoccupation with God, not self. To be preoccupied with who he is. And let me say something. Preoccupation with God has motivated the joy and action of all of the Christians throughout the ages. They were seeking the answer, who is God, not who am I. And as they began to see him, their lives exploded in joy and love and power because they were being dislodged from obsession with self to obsession with God. I mean, you ever see someone like losing their minds in worship and you're like, what's wrong with them, right? What weirdo, why are they losing their minds? Listen, they're not losing their minds, they're losing their self. They're becoming unconscious of self and conscious of God. Y'all, come on, man. Every week, you get the opportunity to leave behind all the selfishness and all the failures and all the sin and worship the living God. And, dude, I'm just, we just squander it sometimes. We're sitting on the threshold of the end of self-obsession. And we're just like, nah, I don't like this song. It's not about the song. It's not about the song. It's not about the guy who can't sing. It's not about the off-tempo thing. You know, come on, you know? We got to... Raise our vision just a little bit above what we're doing right here. It's not about this room. It's not about me. That's not, God, Lord, it's not what we're being enthralled by. It's, I'm out if that's it, right? We are being swept up in the worship of Jesus. That's what we're being called into, being set free from slavery to self, losing ourselves in the presence of God Almighty. 
Losing the slavery to fear of man, losing uh, an obsession with our image, losing being afraid of what people think about it. And as, they, as people have worshipped the living God, and as they have been dislodged from self-centeredness to God-centeredness, guess what question God answers? Who are you? And guess what he says? You're my child, beloved, adopted, forgiven, redeemed. And until we will lose ourselves in the presence of God, we will never know who we are. If you are fixated on demanding who you are, right, showing everyone else who you are, you'll never be able to become a child of God because what are you, you going to do? God's going to say, hey, I want to offer you childhood. And we're going to say, I'm fine, man. I'm good. I know who I am. You have to lose. This is why Jesus says stuff like, you know, you may lose the whole world or lose your soul and gain the whole world, right? Sorry, I messed that one up, right? Why Jesus says stuff like that, man. Dude, worship, y'all, is this opportunity to be, to be set free from slavery of, of others' perception of us. And as we worship, God answers the question, who are you, right? And we worship even more. Lose our mind even more. Lose ourself even more. But you'll never get there if your mind is stuck on yourself. You'll never see him. You'll never be, you're, you'll never be able to, ah, to see his worth and his beauty, you'll never be able to sell everything you have to buy the field, the one treasure that's worth, this far surpasses every other treasure. You'll, ne you'll, ne you'll never see it. One of the most liberating truths of the Bible is that you are not enough. It's the most liberating truth in the Bible. It blows the pressure valve of performance. It blows the pressure valve off of managing your image because we reject it. We know the answer, no, I'm not enough. And then we find out that Christ is enough in our place. And this, the value, the center of value on our life shifts from our performance to the finished work of Jesus. Shifts from our moral effort to the complete atoning sacrifice of the Son of God. So in the Bible, we get these glimpses of what wakes souls up and dislodges them from self-centeredness, and we'll be quick with it. But it's this, oh, listen, here it is, Psalm 63. Oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. So my lips will praise you. So I'm going to bless you as long as I live, and in your name I'm going to lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Amen, huh? My mouth's going to praise you with joyful lips. Look at this, this personal language. David doesn't settle for the God of others. He says, you're my God. He makes it personal. He brings God close to his chest, and he describes a heart that thirsts for God, just like someone thirsts in the desert, in a dry and weary land. He's like, you ever been in the desert? No one, no, we don't. There's no deserts around here. But you ever been in the desert, right? And there's, there's no sustenance. There's no water. There's dry. And you don't, there's nothing that gives you life. And he says, that's how I feel when I walk around. Nothing gives me life like you. And he talks about how... <clears throat> Excuse me. He sees something in the sanctuary. And what does he see? The glory and power of God, transcendent strength and beauty in God. He beheld it, and it causes him to explode in one of the most audacious claims in the entire Bible. And he says, Your love is better than life itself. Think about it, real quick. We'll get out of here. Think about it. Life. <laughs> all of life. All of life. Okay? <laughs> all the pleasures known to man, 
delicious food, the sunrise, travel, becoming a parent, falling in love, buying a house, sex, hobbies, success in business, riches, wealth, power, every good thing you can ever imagine in all of life. He says all of it is just, it doesn't compare to a taste of your love. Your love is better than, your love, God, turns everything else hollow. The love of God, better than it all, right? And he says, my soul is satisfied with like a fat, rich food, right? Not by moral effort, not by getting more religious, not even by serving others, because guess what? All that stuff can be done selfishly. Your religion can be just a reflection of your self-centeredness, right? No, it's going from satisfaction with self to satisfaction with God. That's called salvation, In a word, it's the gospel. Having your eyes opened to the fact that knowing and loving God is the most satisfying, most delightful, most enjoyable, most pleasurable, life-giving experience that humans can ever know. And especially when you realize it's all pure grace and undeserved love. You can't just decide not to be self-centered. You have to find another center. There has to be a greater, more valuable center worth pursuing. And until God is that for you, I think you're just playing church. And we'll end with this last thought. In the 17th century, the Copernican Revolution was happening. Polish astronomer Nicholas Copernicus was telling the world, we are not the center of the universe. Turns out it's a solar system. And every, all the planets, us included, revolve around the sun. Now, until that time, they had said, we are the center of the universe because look up. Everything's revolving around us. And he came up and said, no, it is a heliocentric universe, not a geocentric universe. Now, interestingly enough, in 1633, Galileo was excommunicated from the church and put under house arrest until the day he died. You know why? Because he held to the Copernican heliocentric belief. The church, turns out, we don't like being told we're not the center of the universe, even if we're religious. But what every single one of you need, listen to me, okay, what every single one of you need to help with your marriage, with your job, with the troubles and temptations, all the sorrows and the suffering in the world, what you need is a Copernican revolution. What you need is to be displaced from the center of your life and enthrone the Son of God to his rightful place. As he is the center of the universe, as Jesus is holding all things together, until we acknowledge his supremacy in our own hearts, we are still the center. And I'm telling you, being a self-centered person is, the, is so much. Self-centeredness is so much of the pain and suffering we endure in life. If it's not from your self-centeredness, it's from someone else's. And you know it's true. And only until we give God his rightful place, where we say to God, I want to be a satellite revolving around you, not you revolving around me. Till we can say that, guys, we have to know that our flesh is going to (laughs) fight to the end, right? Our flesh will fight against not being central. But what would your life look like if you stepped off the throne and put God in the center? What What if the question of your life became not what do do I want, but what does God want? Not what brings me joy, but what brings God joy? And I'm telling you, if you can start asking questions like that, your life will explode in flourishing and joy. Because you will start to be dislodged from centering your existence on yourself onto centering your existence on the loves and the sorrows of God. Not your loves, not your desires, not your sorrows. So listen. 
if God is not even in this category of delight for you, you know, a lot of Christians, God's in the category of duty. You know, you grin and bear it, you know. You just show up, nose to the grindstone, just get through this Christian sermon. <laughs> get out of here, right? So much, so many Christians, their category for God is duty, not delight. And if that's you, I want you to come up here after this service and let us pray for you. Because God wants to show himself to you as the ultimate treasure of the universe. As the thing that is worth selling everything so that you could have that one delight, that one treasure. And if you see him as duty, you will never, ever begin to be transformed. There's just going to be moral effort campaign after moral effort campaign, right? Trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And it's not enough. Duty's not enough. Guys, you've got to get over into the light. You've got to start seeing and realizing that God is the most enjoyable most pleasurable, most joyful being in the universe, and he's offered himself to you free of charge. That he has taken care of all the obstacles between you and him, sin, right? Washed it with the blood of his son so that you might know the goodness of himself, right? And I would argue, as we end, I would argue one of the ways that we stave off a slow drift into thinking that we are the center of the universe, it's two things, really, by getting on our knees and praying, and by worshiping. These are the two safeguards that you have accessible to you as a habit, as a way of living, as a way of following Jesus that will stave off the slow drift that all of us have to going back to the center of the universe and thinking everything revolves around us, right? Most of our services, I'll just give it to you straight, they center around you, I'll be honest. That's why we have a microphone and the lights and stage and the sound system. You're the audience for most of our services. But we are starting a Sunday night service um, that's not about you. It's about God. Every Sunday night at 6 o'clock, I will be in this room praying. And I'm inviting you to come. And what we're trying to do is make this service, we're trying to make God the center of this service, not you. We are, we, the, most of our service are to minister to you. This service will be to minister to God. It will be stripped down. Uh, we're not going to be a lot, probably not even going to turn the sound system. We're going to gather in this room, and we're going to get on our face before God and pray. So I just want to invite you, we're starting tonight, I want to invite you, if you are maybe feeling a little self-centered today, and want to begin fighting back more than just one off hit of like, let's let me get some prayer, I want to invite you to start a practice in your life of praying, and I'll help you, I'll do it with you, 6 o'clock tonight. We can get a, we'll get together and we'll pray. And I just want to make it clear, though, this service is not for you. It's for God. It's simply gathering to get on our knees before God and ask for more of him. So I want to invite you to come if you should be so bold. It is not convenient. It's not a convenient time. But again, it's not for you. It's for God. Six o'clock, Sunday night, I want to invite you to join me. And as we start 2024 as a church, um, can I just lay my cards before you? I want Jesus to be the center of this place. I want his hand at work here, not ours, not mine. And if we are so focused on ourself and our own hand and our own work and our own talent, we will miss his hand working even if it's right in front of us. So come pray with me and let's work on dislodging all of us, the, the, the drift, that all, the pull that all of us feel into being self-centered as Christians. Let's dislodge that in the name of Jesus and be centered around God and his glory. Let's come to the communion table.